0: Good afternoon. Let me make sure I'm turned on here. Okay, it looks good on my end. The power of sin is overcome. It is finished. It is done. What powerful words we just sang. I'm excited to be with you this afternoon to preach the word to you. And uh, if you have your Bibles, again, 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be picking up. And let me just encourage your hearts this morning, because we're going to be reading 1 Peter 1 and 2, and then I'm going to enter into a sermon on 1 Peter 1, verse number 2. And you say, this is going to be a long sermon series. (laughs) We're doing one verse each. But I would simply say that 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 2, is so packed. That we really need to spend some time digging into it as a verse. And then once we, once we have developed that, I think the following passages will be jumping in into broader, broader sections. But I'm excited about this message this morning because it continues the theme of identity. So let's read the text. We'll pray. Then we'll jump right into it. We'll begin with verse 1. Peter An apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. If you remember last week, that's the identity I said that Peter was saying, this is who you are, you are an elect exile. You're elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then verse 2, what we're going to focus on this afternoon. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is your word. These are your people. And this afternoon, I would like to be your servant, used by you to accomplish your spirit's work among your people. Thank you this afternoon already that we've been able to sing truth to one another and to encourage each other by such words. May we now, as we listen to what you have spoken to us and seek to understand it, may we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and may that knowledge help us to grow into the people we ought to be, indeed, into the very people you have made us to be. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This, morning, or this afternoon, the title of the sermon is Life's Ultimate Questions. When I state that, I wonder what questions come immediately to your mind. Perhaps they're questions like, should pineapple ever really be on pizza? Or, as I was driving here on the expressway, I discovered that there is a restaurant in town that is now selling pancakes with cheesecake inside of them. Okay, so apparently people are favorable towards that. Is it ever moral to drive the exact speed limit in the very left lane? <laughs> These are the sorts of questions that you can ponder, and they are life's very important questions, but they're not the ultimate questions. What are the ultimate questions of life? Now, I don't know if this church does this, but I have the liberty to be able to Have us do it. So what would you say are some of life's ultimate questions? What would be one? I can't hear very well. I've got a fan. Okay, so one of the questions is why am I here? What, What are we doing here? What's the purpose of life? What's another one? Okay, where are we going? How did we get here in the first place? Who are we? These are the sorts of questions that humanity should ask themselves, but so frequently don't. We just take for granted the fact that we exist, that we're here, uh, that one day we're going to die. We all know that, but nobody wants to think about that. No one wants to prepare for that day. Here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, I think what Peter is doing at the very beginning of his letter is exceptionally intentional. In the first verse, he indicates to us who we are. That's one of life's ultimate questions. And I would pose it this way. We know the answer to life's ultimate questions by Scripture. But I think as believers, we also have life's ultimate spiritual questions. And those spiritual questions have to do with who we are as believers. And so the first question we might ask is, as believers, as chosen ones by God in this world, who are we and how are we different from the world? And that's what Peter was addressing as we talked about last week. He calls us elect exiles. But there are a couple of other questions that we might ask. And that is, How did we become elect exiles? Or, another one, What exactly are we supposed to do as elect exiles? And my suggestion is that Peter has answered both of those questions. He first of all addressed who we are in Christ, then he addresses how we became this, and then what exactly we're supposed to do in light of that. So notice with me, in verse number 2, he tells us what it means to be elect exiles. And you'll notice in verse 2, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God. And you have, to, you have to connect this. According to the foreknowledge of God. Well, what is according to the foreknowledge of God? It's the identity. So insert this. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Go ahead and go to the next slide, if you would. You'll notice... That I've suggested that this is the ground of our identity. Ground is just a fancy word of saying that this is how we became this. How did we become elect exiles? And the biblical answer to that is by the foreknowledge of God. Now I've got a strong feeling that at no point during this last week, perhaps even during this next week, did you use the word foreknowledge. I've just got a feeling. Now, I could be totally wrong, and your vocab is totally different than I anticipate. Foreknowledge isn't a word that we often use. So what exactly does it mean? And I think there are two ways that we might understand the word foreknowledge. One is that I foreknow something because I've been given some sort of insider information. Let me give you a piece of insider information. One day, the Lord Jesus Christ will come back for his saints. I foreknow that. I know that before it happens because I've been told it. Uh, There are other forms of foreknowledge. Uh, People sometimes get rich because they find out that there's going to be some sort of huge announcement for a company. There's a a merger. Or maybe they've acquired another company and and they know that this news is going to just rock the market. It's going to shoot it up. And so they have foreknowledge of that event. They invest all their money in it and they make some cash. That's foreknowledge, or, or perhaps uh, the, one, of, one of my vivid television memories from when I was younger was from the show The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Now, if you are under the age of 30 years old, you can talk to your parents later about what the show Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was, but it was a sitcom, very popular in the 90s, in which I remember once Will recorded the news of the, uh, the lotto. And the, the four or five-digit number, six-digit number, I don't remember. And then he went and bought the ticket for that number. And he gave it to Carlton. And then he had Carlton sit there and said, Hey, hey, I gave you that, that ticket. Let's, let's watch the news. And then he, it, it, because he had already started playing the news, and he reads the first number, the second number, the third number. It's all the same, fourth, fifth, all the way to the sixth And he wins, and he's so excited, and he didn't really win. But you see, in that scenario, Will had a foreknowledge of what that newscast was going to say about the number because he knew beforehand there was some sort of insider knowledge. Is that the type of foreknowledge that Scripture talks about when it says that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? Now, there are some who argue that that is exactly what the Scriptures are talking about. But I'm convinced it's not. There's a second way in which I can say I foreknow something. And that is that I have the power to make something happen and therefore I foreknow that it will take place. For instance, I foreknow that I will eat dinner tonight. Now I don't know what I'm going to eat for dinner but I'm quite confident I'm going to eat dinner tonight. There could be something that takes place. I could get into an accident on the way home, uh, God forbid, and if that takes place, maybe I won't eat dinner tonight. But that would then be outside my control. But those things that are inside my control, I can foreknow them because I am in control of them. Here's the thing that's different about God and me. God never fails. There's nothing... That takes place in God's life that prevents him from accomplishing his own purposes. So that God's foreknowledge is not a mere matter of him saying, I'm going to do something and maybe or maybe it will not take place. But it is God stating to us that it's something is going to take place, and then it does take place because he foreknew it. Not because he knew it beforehand, merely, because he knew the events would transpire in some particular way, but because in his meticulous will, he determined that it would happen. And you say, well, is this really what he's saying here? If you'd go to the next slide, I think we're going to prove by a couple of passages that this is the type of foreknowledge Scripture ascribes to our God. Proverbs 16.33 is a verse we, as a family... Just had in our family devotions, uh, maybe last week, two weeks ago, I don't recall. But we walked through what it means that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And if you remember what the lot is in the Old Testament, it's it's essentially a pair of, of dice that you would throw, and it would come up with what you might think are random numbers. And indeed, for you and I, it would be random. But is it ever random for God? The point of this passage is that it's never random for God. The die is cast by means of God's meticulous providence. Or consider Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Now, sometimes people interpret this passage to say that the Father just simply knows that a sparrow is going to fall. But if you notice the way the ESV translates this, and I think they do so rightly, it is not so much that God foreknows in just a, uh, you know, he he knows, oh, this bird's going to die at that time, but that in his meticulous providence, he has made it so. It is the Father who causes all things to come to pass. Indeed, the very language of the passage we're dealing with here today is suggested in one other passage, if you turn to the next one. Uh, <clears throat> and I can't read that passage, so here, here it is in, in my notes, Acts 2.23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, and notice these next lines, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you remember last week I was telling you that after Peter betrayed the Lord Jesus by three times denying he knew him, He then stood before the Sanhedrin and all the people of Jerusalem and preached a powerful message. This was a part of that message. And you know what he says to them? He says, this man came to you, this man Jesus of Nazareth, and he had wondrous works. And he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Do you see how... uh, Peter there is combining two ideas together, definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Accordingly, the foreknowledge of God is not simply God knowing beforehand something that would take place. Rather, it is the very meticulous providence of God. Even in this case, it's quite interesting because Peter says, you, by wicked hands, delivered, God, d- delivered the Son of God over to death. Even though this was the very plan of God from the ages. That's a sermon for another time. But the point here being when Peter says that we are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, what he's saying is this. From the foundation of the world, you were chosen to be in Christ. Would you turn with me just a few pages back or flip over there in terms of your device to the book of Ephesians? One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Ephesians chapter 1. And I think it's appropriate for us simply to consider the words of this passage as we think about the fact that our being in Christ, our elect exile status is due to God's goodness and kindness, and not ourselves. Here's what, Pe- here's what Paul says about this same truth in Ephesians chapter 1, and just glory in these words. Paul is praising God for what he's done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1 is Paul's consideration of God's eternal election of believers in Christ. Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers about election and and God's uh, God's election and uh, mankind's responsibility. All I can do is affirm what the Scriptures teach. And here's what the Scripture teaches. That we, if you have believed in Christ, were chosen from the foundation of the world. You know, the word election, it's this big word, but it really just means choice. And here then, Peter says... How did you become an elect exile? Here's how you became an elect exile. It was because of the choice of the Father. From the foundation of the world in his foreknowledge, he chose us in him. So what does that mean then for us? Well, a couple of things. It means, first of all, that our election is not our own doing. To the degree that we say... I did, I did, I did, we're wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, Scripture never denies human responsibility when it affirms God's sovereignty. But at the end of the day, if we are to praise anyone for our salvation, it should be God alone. The second thing, remember, we are elect exiles. So you are chosen, not merely for election, But you are also chosen for exile. And this must be the bulwark. This must be the foundation stone upon which we stand on when we experience rejection and hostility in this world. We must remember that despite the good kindness of God in choosing us, that very choice is also the thing that leads us into difficulty in this life. As the Apostle Paul says, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There's a connection between our choice in Christ and our difficulty in this world. We cannot live our best life now. And if we live our best life now, then we probably will have no life in the future. So, the first thing is that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you go to the next slide, one of the things that we notice about this phrase here is that he is also called God the Father. Now, I just draw briefly your attention to this phrase because it's going to be rather significant for us in the, in the times to come. One of the central themes that runs through the entirety of the book of 1 Peter is that we are a family. You are my brothers and sisters. But it also is associated with the fact that we have a heavenly Father, a God who stands above us, but a God who loves us. And I can't help but think of it this way. We are adopted. In fact, did you just notice, maybe you picked it up in Ephesians chapter 1 when we read that passage. As, Peter was, or as Paul was addressing what election means, he says part of what election means is that we are adopted into his heavenly family. And I think of this particular apt illustration Because adoption is a rather significant thing. I don't know if any families here in this church have been touched by adoption, but adoption is a beautiful thing, but it's a very hard thing. And you think of adoption as a family comes into a home to observe the various children. And those various children feel like they're being judged and and often... Sometimes there's difficulty with these children and they feel like they'll never be chosen because of their own personal quirks or whatever difficulty they've faced in the past. And I think of each of us as children in the world longing to be adopted and their heavenly father walks through. And do we deserve, are we the glowing ones to whom he's drawn to and says, yes, this one and this one. Or are we children with great difficulty? And he nevertheless reaches down and picks us up. What a powerful picture. But I think it's the one that scripture is portraying for us. We are adopted into his family. He is our heavenly father. How did we become elect exiles? It has been because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. Go ahead and go to the next slide. There's a second thing. We are elect exiles, not only according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but the second thing Peter tells us here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, is we are elect exiles. In the ESV it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. I like the translation, through the sanctification of the Spirit. The NIV has it translated that way, and a few other versions take it that way as well. I think that that's the probably better translation here. It is through the sanctification of the Spirit that we are chosen, uh, that we become elect exiles. Now, of course, this makes us ask the question, what does sanctification mean? Again, here's another word that you probably didn't use this week. What does it mean to be sanctified? It's a word deeply ingrained in the Old Testament. And it simply means to set something apart. Usually, to set something apart for holy use. And the word is used usually in reference to Christian life in this way. Oh man, the Lord is sanctifying me. He is making me more and more like Christ. Or like one of my friends would, like, uh, would often say, Oh, don't do that. You'll make me lose my sanctification. Because uh, he'd get upset. And the idea there is that God has us in a process where we are slowly, but surely, being transformed into the image of Jesus. And I think that this is accurate. But if we only think that sanctification means this slow, gradual process by which we become more and more like Jesus, then we run into a problem. You can go to the next slide. And the problem is this. If we're elect by means of the sanctification of the Spirit, then it appears that somehow my transformation into Christ makes me acceptable to God. And that is unacceptable. That is not what Scripture teaches. Indeed, as we talked about just a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 2, we had nothing to give God when we came to Him. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So then in what way are we elect through the sanctification of the Spirit. I think it's important for us to understand that there is a past, a present, and a future sanctification. The the future sanctification is that progressive sanctification we've been talking about, but the scripture actually says that when we are saved, we are sanctified at that moment. If you'd go to the next slide, we've got a couple of passages that suggest this. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. It's up on the screen. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. Together with all those in every place who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Both theirs, their Lord and ours. So here's the question, brothers and sisters. Are you sanctified? The answer is yes. Go to the next slide. We've got another passage in 1 Corinthians 6, just a few chapters later. Paul is comparing the lives of believers with unbelievers. And he says that there were certain things that that were associated with your former life. But then he says this, And such were some of you. You used to live this way. But you were washed you were sanctified. Do you see that? That's past tense. You were sanctified. You were set apart for holiness. Go to the next slide with me, if you would. Second Thessalonians 2:13 then tells us, "But we ought always to give God to give, thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you His firstfruits to be saved. Notice this through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul is wedding two things. He says, when you believe in truth, you are sanctified by the Spirit. It is a past event that happened when you believed in Christ. You were sanctified. And by the way, this is why the Scripture calls us by a particular name. Saints. You are a saint. Not too long ago, I was teaching a class, and as is custom these days, I, had, I was using Zoom, and one of my students was at home, and for some reason I drew a circle on the board, and then I was talking about that circle, and I was standing in front of it, and it, then it looked like a halo above my head. And so he took this picture of his Zoom, and then sent it to me, and said, St. Timothy. And it was a joke, But there's some truth to that. I am Saint Timothy. And you are Saint your name. Now, you may not have very much success if tonight you indicate to your family, I would like to go by Saint whatever in the future. But it is true of you. You are the sanctified one. You are set apart for holiness if you trusted in Christ. The Roman Catholic Church, they want to limit that. They want to say only a certain select people are saints. But that is not the scriptural teaching. The scriptural teaching is that if you've been set aside by Christ, if you've been set aside by the Holy Spirit, you are a saint. You're sanctified. No, no. What then is uh, Peter's point in this context? He's, He's saying this. We are set apart for holiness by the Holy Spirit. We are elect exiles by the Spirit. And so, how do we apply this in our lives today? I think the application is pretty simple. You are chosen, and when you are chosen by the Father, you are chosen by the sanctification of the Spirit. He's the one who sets you apart for holiness. And here is the process of sanctification then. You are becoming who you are. You hear that? You are becoming who you are you're sanctified. Remember, even just think about the language of Scripture. It says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And you say, well, I'm not, but, but we are. That's, that's who we are. That's who, in essence who we are. We are Christ's, and he's transformed us, so we are becoming who we are. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 6. Do you remember when he asked the question? <clears throat> he says, should we, should we continue in sin? that grace might abound more? Because if God was so gracious to forgive us all of our sins, then let's sin more, and as we sin more, then he'll forgive more, and and now God's grace is expanded more and more. And you know, Paul's answer is quite different than most of us anticipate. I think most of us would say something like, you know, if somebody came to you and said, well, can I just keep sinning, and then God's going to forgive me, and, and his grace just looks better and better? I think most of us would say, well, no, no, you should should love the Lord more than that. Uh, Don't do that sort of thing. But you know, Paul doesn't go there. You know what he says? How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? You know what his point is? That's not who you are anymore. Like, that's not even an option for you. You've been set apart for holiness. So we're elect. By the setting apart of the spirit to be his. Now, what's interesting, I think, about what Peter says is that, remember, we're talking elect exile. In the first one, the father's action is is... significant on the elect side of things. And the Spirit's action, I would argue, is significant on the exile side of things. In other words, if you're asking the question, how did we become exiles in this world? The answer is, because the Spirit set you apart. Because he gave you a new heart, a new mind. And you can't live like you used to live. And now you're different. Now you're, according to the world, you're weird. You're different. And that's because of the setting apart of the Spirit. And we're going to talk more about that in the time to come. So, those are the two elements. Let's jump to the third one here. Because there's one more that the Scripture speaks on. If you go to the next slide. And that is that we are elect exiles for the purpose of... Now, this is a mouthful, all right? So, stick with me here for a moment. For the obedient blood splitting obedient blood sprinkling of the Son. And I would argue that this is the purpose of our elect exile status. Now, if you're reading from the ESV, you'll notice that what it does is it divides this element of Jesus into, three, into two parts. It says we're set apart, or we are elect exiles for first obedience to Jesus Christ and then second, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, I I believe that Peter's actually saying something a little bit different. If you'll notice, this is a Trinitarian attribution. Did you notice that the first thing was by the Father? He chose us. The second thing was by the Spirit. He set us apart. And the third thing is by the Son of God, Jesus himself. What's interesting, then, is that the first thing... Is God's action doing one thing? The second thing, is the Spirit's action doing one thing? But the way that the ESV reads here is not the Son's action, nor is it one thing. So, what do I think is the better way of reading this? Well, it's, it's up on your screen, but it's going to take some explanation. I've got some dashes in there. And what exactly I think Peter is doing here is he's using this thing called a hendiadys. Now you don't have to remember that phrase, but it simply means he is using two words to refer to one concept. If I were to say today uh, that today was nice and warm, that's really two words, nice and warm, that really communicates one concept. It's nicely warm, right? And in the same way, I think what Peter is doing in this passage is he is bringing together obedience and blood sprinkling. And you ask the question, why would he do such a thing? Because this seems rather odd. Blood sprinkling isn't something we talk about very frequently. We're not going to turn our passage there to Exodus 23, 4 to 8. But from what I understand, Pastor Brian walked through the book of Exodus. Exodus. And I'm sure you all remember the entirety of all of it. But I'll explain it just for maybe those who are new, all right? Uh, But in Exodus chapter 24, the people have come out out of Egypt. If you remember, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Now they've been given the entirety of the law. Moses comes to the people, and he reads the entirety of the book of the covenant before the people. And he says to them, will you obey And they say they will obey it. And he takes the blood and he sprinkles them with it. In fact, notice this passage here in um, in Exodus 24. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be, notice this word, obedient. Do you notice blood sprinkling obedience right here in this passage? And Moses took the blood. And threw it on the people, he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this is a rather odd passage in terms of our modern day. Uh, Probably none of us have been sprinkled with blood before and we're not quite sure what to do with it. But here's what it is. It is... The scripture tells us that a covenant needs the shedding of blood in order to enact that covenant. In the Old Testament, it tells us that God has established, he is promising in the future, from the Old Testament perspective, that there is coming a day in which he will enact a new and better covenant. And this new and better covenant will have a better sacrifice. And it will have a better mediator. Who then is the mediator of this covenant? Is the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the sacrifice? It is his own blood. Now obviously this mixes all kinds of metaphors. Generally the thing sacrificed does not sprinkle blood on you, but it can in Jesus' case because he rose from the dead. So bringing this back to Peter's point, I'm suggesting that he is identifying obedience and blood sprinkling as something that Jesus does for our benefit. And the point is this, that we are elect exiles for the purpose of entering into the new covenant. The new covenant that has been established by his blood. And do not forget the beautiful blessings of that new covenant. He has promised that he will give us a new heart. A new heart in which we can obey his law. And when we enter that new covenant, I think what scripture is saying is that when we, obey, when we submit to the Lord Jesus, when we confess our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus, what we're doing is we are confessing his truth and we are submitting in obedience to him. We are entering into the new covenant, if you will. You could go to the next slide then if you would. And that's the end of the slides. So, what is Peter's point here then? He's suggesting that the triune God is responsible for your identity today. Again, we live in a day when everybody wants to latch on to some identity. Who am I? And here's what scripture gives you as an identity. You are are an elect exile. How did you become this? The Father chose you from the foundation of the world. What exactly was this process? It was the setting apart by the Spirit so that you were chosen by God, you were elect, and yet you've become an exile among this world because you've been set apart by the Spirit for His holiness. And all of this you've been set apart for obedience to Jesus Christ, because you've been given the new covenant, which includes a heart to obey. And so my question to you today is this. As we think about life's most important spiritual questions, who are we? Elect exiles. How did we get here? The Spirit set us aside. And what are we supposed to be doing? Being obedient to Jesus Christ throughout the rest of this life. Latch on to this identity. As you experience difficulty and challenge in this world, remember, I am elect. And that election comes with this exile status. And yes, I'm going to have difficulty. But that difficulty just shows me even more that I am indeed chosen by my Father. Oh, Father, we thank you that you've chosen us in Christ from the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before you in love. Father, we thank you for the setting apart of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that enacted a better covenant, one in which we are given a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, and one in which your Spirit has now come to reside in us so that we can obey your law, that we can be obedient to this covenant. Oh, Father, a few weeks back, we talked about the fact that we are all your masterpieces. We are all being created by you to reflect your your son, the Lord Jesus. May we, in the midst of difficulty of life, in the midst of the challenges that you allow us to face, never forget who we are. We are, because of your work, your Trinitarian work, elect exiles. Thank you, Father.